Welcome to Oak Ridge Bible Chapel. My name is Alice, and I'm one of the members of this church family. And we are so excited to have you join us today. So grab your Bible, your tablet, your notebook, pens, pencils, whatever it is that will help you engage most with today's sermon. And please enjoy our Sunday message. Well, today we are going to observe communion near the end of our time together. And so if you haven't already grabbed the package of the emblems when you came in, they're near the two doors uh, by the back. Feel free to do that over the next number of minutes. My motivation for switching things around today is not for mere novelty, not to just keep you on your toes and keep you guessing, but because the text we're looking at today, Revelation chapter 19, it really prepares us, I think, for the table of the Lord, as we will see. The chapter we're looking at, the chapter we're considering, as we'll see in a moment, it really describes two banquets, one of great celebration and one of great condemnation. And our study of these two future supper, suppers will ready us today to partake in the Lord's Supper, which is a meal of commemoration, where we remember what the Lord has done for us. Now, I want to begin today by reading Revelation 19 in its entirety, a chapter that tells of the culmination of God's wrath against sin and his destruction of sin, something we long for, right? And that's kind of coming to a head as we come to Revelation 19 and 20. Over the last couple of months, as we made our way through this book of the Bible, we've seen that Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain and is thus worthy, will one day initiate and oversee and enact righteous judgment upon the whole world. There will be natural disasters and unnatural occurrences. Fear and famine, death and darkness and demonism. And while the church, we will be exempt from this terrible time of testing, those who come to faith during that time, and there will be many, praise God, but those who come to faith during that time will likely be martyred for their faith. It's a chaotic time. As the Old Testament prophets predicted, Jesus affirmed, this coming time of chaos will be such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will be. It's uniquely terrible. But as we were so graciously reminded last week from this pulpit, in the end, God wins, doesn't he? No matter how bad it gets, and it will get bad, God does win. And as we start to get into Revelation 19 today, we start to see the ultimate victory, this ultimate victory, begin to be crystallized. So I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard, but whatever you have in your hand will be fine, I'm sure. Revelation chapter 19, starting in verse 1. After these things, I heard something like a, sound, like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. 
And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. And I heard something like the sound of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. Then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, do not do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beast and the, king of the, the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and who were worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. As we read that graphic text, one of you heard the two banquets the two suppers, the two meals. In verse 9, we're told that the marriage supper of the Lamb is ready. And then in verse 17, the birds are told to assemble for the great supper of God. Two future banquets of, let's face it, dramatically different tones. One to be pursued and anticipated, one to be avoided. One of inexpressible celebration and the other of incomprehensible, and as I said, graphic condemnation. Now, I want to look at both in turn today, but I want to start with the bad news and get that out of the way and get to the celebration after. We begin with the second one, starting in verse 11, this supper of condemnation. It's a meal that's announced by its host, the Lord Jesus Christ, who bursts through the heavens atop a white horse if you've ever wondered what it will be like when Christ returns, and I know many of you have, we talk about it, we say, come Lord Jesus, and we wonder, what will that be like? What will he look like? What will he sound like? 
we get a hint right here. And John wants us to notice a few things about him. First, he wants us to notice what Jesus is called. He gives a lot of names and a lot of attention to what Jesus is labeled and referred to as in this text. First, in verse 11, he's called faithful and true. It means he keeps his word. He keeps his promises perfectly, including the promise to judge evil. In verse 12, we're told that he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. I think this points to the fact that, yes, praise God, we can know Christ. Amen? We know Christ. We know who he is. But at the same time, we can't fully know him. We can know him truly, but not fully. He has condescended to us in the incarnation, but he is still transcendent above us. And so there are things about him that we will spend eternity exploring, but there's something about him we will fully never understand, and nor should we. He's God, after all. In verse 13, it says his name is called the Word of God. He is the revealer and adjudicator of God's will. God says this will be so, and here comes Christ to show it to his people and show it to the world and to make sure it comes to pass. And in verse 16, John reports that on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That one requires almost no explanation. You see, what Jesus is called when he returns, it says something about him. And here it says that he is the unrivaled authority, personifying and imposing truth as promised. It says something about him. But John wants us to notice other things as well. Not only what he's called, but he also wants us to see what Jesus is like. What he looks like when he returns. In verses 12 and 13, it says that his eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. In verse 15, it adds that from his mouth comes a sharp sword. So what is this about? It says his eyes, they burn with a zeal to destroy sin. And the crowns on his head say that he has the authority to do just that. The bloody robes imagery from Isaiah 63, they tell of God's wrath against rebellious nations, nations that will not bend the knee to him. But he will make it happen, something he does by the powerful and slicing word that comes from his mouth. You may be familiar with Martin Luther's great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. But in the third verse, it says this, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fell him. That's the power of the sword that comes from the mouth of God. He uses it to bring justice. So what Jesus looks like when he returns, it also obviously says something about him. In this case, it seems to say that he means business when he comes, and he comes ready for war. Finally, John wants us to notice not only what he's called and what he looks like, but he also wants us to notice what he's doing. Verse 11 says that in righteousness he judges and wages war. And he's not alone. In verse 15 it says that he leads an army of purified saints. Although as we keep reading it seems like they're mainly there as spectators. And they're following on horses but they really don't do a whole lot because it's him 
and him alone that will, quote, strike down the nations and rule them with a rod of iron. Psalm 110 says, The Lord is called up to the Father, and be here until your enemies be made a footstool. Well, here it is. It's Jesus, and Jesus alone, that treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. See, what Jesus is doing when he returns, it says something about him. He's not only ready for war, but he wages it, and he wins it. See, the dragon, we've been introduced in the book of Revelation, the serpent of old, Satan. When we come to this point, and we know it all too well, but when we come to Revelation 19, we can say he's had his day on earth. He's had his time to kill and to deceive and to destroy and to tear down all that God has made. He has had his time, centuries worth, of waging war against God and against God's Son and against God's people. And we felt that. We feel that now. We see the effects and we feel the effects of this serpent waging war in this world. Well, here in Revelation 19, this is where it ends. Right here. This is the end. Because Jesus Christ, God the Son incarnate, descends to the battlefield of this fallen world, not as a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, but as a warrior draped in royal robes. That's how he comes next. He's not riding a donkey toward a cross here. He is riding a war horse toward a throne. That's what he's like when he comes again. It ends here. That the cancer of sin will be totally excised from this world. I can't even imagine what that will be like. The terrorism of evil will be completely eradicated. The rot of wickedness will be dug up and forever discarded. But we can't do it. We can't do it not only because we are weak and because we're finite and because we're simple, but because we're contributors. We contribute to the sin. No, no, we need the perfect surgeon, the flawless warrior, the eternal king of kings. And that's what we see coming in Revelation 19. Finally, finally he comes. Now, in spite of his epic entrance, and it is epic, isn't it? Comes on the clouds, looking like he looks, being called what he's called. In spite of this epic entrance, those on earth during this time, they still don't bend the knee. Look what they do in verse 19. They assemble to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. It's crazy. But that's exactly what sin does. They are so drunk with rebellion that they come to challenge God for his supremacy. They say, we know that you've made this world. We know it's yours. You created it, but now it's ours. Get back, God. I don't need to tell you that that has never worked in the past. It does not work now and will not work in the future either. Challenging God for his throne. In fact, Christ's victory here is so sure that an angel invites the birds to prepare for a banquet. In verse 17, come Assemble for the great supper of God, where what's on the menu is not fine food and wine, but the corpses of those who rebel against the Almighty. Come, assemble for the great supper of God. The invitation is urgent because the war will be short and the destruction will be total. All who challenge God will fall. It says small and great, and as predicted, so it will be. Verse 20, and the beast was seized and him with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence. They're thrown into the lake of fire, and the rest were killed with the sword, and the birds were filled with their flesh. This is the second coming of Jesus Christ. 
And as believers, there's a sense in which, as we've sang several times today already, we long for this. Not this part, so to speak, the chaos, but what comes after it. We long for that. In fact, we'll sing things like, Lord, haste the day when the faith will be sight. And the clouds will be rolled back as a scroll and a trump will sound and the Lord will descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. We want that. We long for that as believers. But that which is the best day ever for those in Christ will be the worst for those who stand against him. Why? Because there is a supper coming of condemnation. A banquet to which all who stand opposed to Christ will attend when he comes. But praise God, there is another option. There is another option. There is another supper even in this text. There's another banquet that people can attend should they wish. And it's a supper of celebration. It's just as beautiful as the other one is devastating, but it is a supper of celebration. For this, we go back to the beginning of chapter 19. And celebration really is the right word for it. I don't know if you caught it, but it's hallelujahs all over the place. It's a series of hallelujahs. And if you don't know hallelujah, it's just the Hebrew word, the declaration for praise God. Praise God. And the first one is in verse 1. This heavenly throng in verse 1, it says hallelujah. Imagine what that would have sounded like. Like we hear each other singing and it sounds wonderful, but imagine a heavenly throng with glorified voices singing hallelujah. That's what's going on here. And they say that why? Why are they praising God? They say in verse 1, because salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot. Remember in chapter 18, that is Babylon, the city and the system of sin that has ravaged this world. God has taken her down. He has judged her, who was corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. This throng is praising God because he perfectly and totally judges wickedness. Now, let's pause for a second because we don't want to confuse two things. They aren't sadistically celebrating the slaughter of people. That's not what this is. What they are doing, they are celebrating the defeat of sin that made all of this necessary. And that's the same with us today. We do not relish the thought that people will be judged and stand under this returning Christ. That's not what we long for. In fact, not even God longs for that. He's patient, not wanting anyone to be judged, but all to come to repentance. But it's the sin behind that we hate and need to be killed. It's that sin. In fact, we know from Ephesians 6 that our battle is not against flesh and blood, right? It's against the powers. It's against the principalities behind the scene, and we need that gone. And just the thought that that will one day be gone. I don't know about you, this, this week has just been wearying for me. Even just a sin in my life, I'm just so tired I'm so tired of that battle. To know that it will one day be gone is worthy of a thousand hallelujahs. Praise God that I will not have to deal with this anymore, that we won't have to deal with this anymore. Gone. Gone forever. Hallelujah. In verse 4, the elders around the throne and the, the four living creatures, they can't help but join in, falling down and agreeing with the multitudes. They say, amen, hallelujah. Amen is just that. It's an agreement. Truly that. May it be what was just said. Amen, hallelujah. And a voice comes from the throne, inviting others to join in as well in verse 5. Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. We've heard that before in this text, the small and the great. Here there's these parallel banquets and parallel attendees to the banquets. 
Well, in verse 18, the small and the great are those who hate God, and they will be condemned. Here, the small and the great are those who fear God, and they will celebrate. To fear God is to revere him, to obey, and to love him, and they look forward to the celebration. Verse 6, then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, and like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. In other words, it's loud. Okay, we get it. It's loud, super loud. And they're saying, hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty, he reigns. Is there anything he can't do? I mean, here they're looking back at the defeat of Babylon, who ravaged the world for millennia, and how he snuffed them out, and he's looking ahead to the the, the reign of Christ, and they look both directions and say, our God is almighty. What can he not do? He can do everything. He reigns. Our God is truly almighty. Hallelujah. And this invitation to worship, it quickly becomes an invitation to a wedding in verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. This is the wedding of Jesus. The Lamb of God, the bridegroom who laid down his life for his bride. Paul speaks to this in Ephesians 5 when he's addressing husbands, but he ties it very closely to this scene here. He says in Ephesians chapter 5, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's a tall order, husbands. That's our task, to love as Christ loves, laying ourselves down for our wives. He continues, speaking of Christ and the church, so that Christ may sanctify her, the church, that is, set her aside, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Notice the word can cleanse and it can stab like a scalpel. Both of those things that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. He's come to get his bride. Once in a while, I have the opportunity, the privilege of officiating weddings. And I have the best view in the house in those times. I get to stand here and I see the bride come in. I see the husband right here looking at his bride. I see their faces when they see each other for the first time. I see the congregation as they turn back and forth trying to capture both. I see that all happening. And right here, in a sense, in Revelation 19, we're being called to imagine the faces of the bride and the bridegroom as they see each other for the first time in glory. They can see each other in this longing, this, this, we've been waiting. There it is, and we are catching a glimpse of it here in Revelation 19. Jesus sought a bride. He called her redeemed her, cleansed her, so that she would be ready for him. Jesus purifies his bride with his gift of righteousness and with the power to pursue righteousness herself. It's both and. We see that in verse 8. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. This is a mystery, but God is involved on both sides. We are saved by God's grace, and by his grace we serve him. And we follow him, and we worship him, and we wait for him. Verse 9, Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. In other words, this party is happening. 
And it is going to be a supper of celebration, the likes of which the world has never known. Blessed are those who are invited to this supper, who stand not with the rebels, but with the redeemed, not with the beast, but as the bride. Blessed are those who are invited. Now, an obvious follow-up question would be, well, how do I get invited? Because I'd rather that, right? I want this supper. I don't want the other or anything like it. How do I get invited? And we know it's by putting our faith in the groom. That's how we get invited. By believing God when he says he loves us as we sang and that his son, Jesus, came and sought us while we were yet sinners, died on the cross for those very sins, rose from the dead, and offers eternal life to all who trust him for it. When you do that, you are given the white wedding robes of Jesus' perfection. You are given the Holy Spirit to live in you and empower you toward the righteous acts as we prepare ourselves for our beloved's appearing. When we do that, we have a real reason to say, Hallelujah, praise God, and wait with great anticipation for the wedding party. If you've never done that, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, asking him for the eternal life he has promised and for the invitation to the best dinner party ever thrown, today is the day. It really is that simple. It is just talking to God. You do not have to walk this aisle. You do not have to give to the church. You don't have to do any of that. You need to do work with your God right now. Your creator, who loves you, sent his son to, his son to die for you. And you go to him and say, I'm a sinner. I'm agreeing with you, God. I'm not perfect, and perfection is what you demand. I'm throwing myself on your mercy and believing in Jesus for that perfection. I'm trusting in him for the eternal life that only he can give. And in that moment, you pass from death to life. It's a beautiful thing. Now, most of us have done that, but we still have work to do. We have passed from death to life. We are draped in the wedding robes waiting for that supper, but we still have work to do. And as we scan this text, just to say it simply, we are called to prepare ourselves, are we not? It says here that the bride has made herself ready. We're also called to anticipate to wait for his coming. And finally, we are called to worship, to say hallelujah. We are called to prepare, to anticipate, and to worship. All three of which we're going to do now as we come to the table. This is what we've come to do. To prepare, to anticipate, and to worship him for who he is and what he's done and what he has promised to do. As believers in Jesus Christ, we come to this supper of commemoration We've seen the supper of condemnation and the supper of celebration. Now we come to one of remembrance, of commemoration. We come and, and we ask, what are we commemorating? What are we remembering here? Well, what we're remembering is why and how it is that sinners like us get to go to that wedding supper. Like, how is that possible? This is how. It's because Jesus gave himself and shed his blood for us. And we remember it right now as we do this. Now, most of you will know that the foundation of the supper we're about to enjoy together and partake in has its roots in the Jewish Passover. You may remember in Exodus, Exodus chapter 12, when God's people were in bondage in Egypt and God hears their cries and sends Moses to them and says, I'm going to deliver you from this bondage. And Egypt says, no way. And Pharaoh says, no way, no way, no way. And God brings plagues to soften his heart. It only hardens his heart till God says to his people, here's what you need to do. There's one final plague coming. You need to take a lamb, slaughter that lamb, take its blood and paint it on your door frame and eat. And when you do that, that night, I'm going to come through Egypt and every house that does not have the blood on the doorpost, I'm going to take their eldest son, their eldest son home. 
But for those who are hidden under the blood, by faith, who are trusting in me, they will be spared. And so for centuries, Israel celebrated this time. They celebrated, they commemorated their deliverance from Egyptian oppression for all who hid under the blood, the blood of this lamb. And they did it for centuries and centuries. In fact, that's exactly what they were observing on the night Jesus was betrayed. When he gathered with his disciples in an upper room and he set out to to celebrate Passover, to remember blood sparing his people. But you know this well. He changed things up a little bit, didn't he? On that night before he was betrayed, he took, it says in Matthew chapter 26, while they were eating the Passover, Jesus took some bread. And after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And when they had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. See, while the Passover meal remembered deliverance from bondage in Egypt by the blood of Elam, the communion meal remembers the deliverance from the bondage of sin by the blood of the Lamb, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. While the Passover meal was connected with the old covenant, you may recall, that which was powerless and external to the people, this new meal is connected with the new covenant, one that is internal and enlivening. It gives us the power to obey God and to make ourselves ready for the return of the bridegroom. The Apostle Paul would later give instructions for the observation of this supper in 1 Corinthians. He says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man or woman must examine himself, herself, and and in so doing, they are to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment on himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number have fallen asleep. So this supper that we're about to partake in, just like the future marriage supper of the Lamb described in Revelation 19, is for those who belong to the groom. It's for those who belong to the groom, who have believed in Jesus and are thus a member of the bride, the church. And we come to this supper of commemoration to remember how that it is so that we get to go to that supper, that we anticipate that supper, that the Son of God gave himself his body and shed his blood to bring us to him. So what do we do? We prepare, we anticipate, and we worship as we come to this meal. We prepare ourselves. It says in 1 Corinthians that we examine ourselves so that we do not feast, he says, in an unworthy manner. Now in the context of 1 Corinthians, if you know anything about the church in Corinth, it was chaos. And there was all sorts of disunity in the body, and he calls them out for that. And he says, listen, you are taking this and you are proclaiming our unity to Christ. I am I'm united with Christ, and because of that, I'm united with all of you. And in Corinth, they hated one another. 
And they were fighting with one another. He says, what hypocrisy. How can you say unity, unity, and hate your brother and sister in Christ? He says, examine yourself. Prepare yourself. Do you have harboring bitterness against the body? Don't do that. And so we, even today, we come and we prepare ourselves. We examine our hearts and say, is there, as I'm about to proclaim unity, is there something in my heart against a brother or sister in Christ? Do I harbor bitterness against the church? That's how we prepare ourselves. We go to the Lord right now, and in the quietness of our heart, we just do work with him. And he said, Lord, Holy Spirit, show me. Is there sin in my life? Is there something that is, is bringing about hypocrisy? So I want to take a moment as we prepare ourselves. Let's go, go in quiet to the Lord right now and speak with him. Say, Lord, reveal to me any sin in my life. And by the way, if you've never trusted Christ, now would be a great time. You have not come today to receive a little wafer and a thimble of juice. You've come to receive eternal life. I'm convinced of that. And so as we bow and examine our hearts and say, is there anything in me that would hinder me from coming to the table for you, go to the Lord in prayer. Say, Lord, I want the greatest gift ever given. Let's just go in silence now for a moment. We've prepared ourselves. I'm convinced that's a prayer God answers. Lord, show me sin in my heart. And we are shown that sin, we take it to him, we repent, and we receive cleansing. He promises that. So we've prepared ourselves for this meal. Next thing to do is anticipate. Prepare and anticipate. When he instituted this supper, Jesus said, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. It's, built, it's baked right into the cake. Anticipation. We are longing for that kingdom to come. And Paul, he picks up on that in 1 Corinthians. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We do it in anticipation. We've prepared ourselves not just by believing in the Son who died for us, but by asking the Spirit to cleanse us of hypocrisy. And now we prepare to remember his death while anticipating his return. Come, Lord Jesus. And finally, we worship. As we do. We prepare ourselves, we anticipate, and we worship. This is an act of praise. This is an act of worship. We know this. We talk about it often at the church, that worship is not only music. It's everything. Our lives are to be an act of worship. This is a hallelujah to the God who provided it for us. With every bite, we say, Thank you, Father, who is worthy and able to save sinners like me. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for my rebellion. Thank you, Spirit, for making me new and keeping me yours. And with every swallow, we say, come, Lord Jesus, kill sin, set up your kingdom, free your people, bring the supper of celebration. That's what we do. We prepare ourselves, we anticipate, and we worship. Let's pray together before we eat and partake together. Bow with me. Like a bride waiting for her groom, we will be a church ready for you. Every heart longing for our king, we sing, even so, come, Lord Jesus, come. Our Father, our hearts are heavy and weary with the sin, rebellion, and brokenness all around us in this world and even within us. We confess that what you've said is true. Only you can remedy a rot this deep, a cancer this aggressive, and a hatred this intense. But we thank you now 
because you have and you will. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who died for those sins, rose from the dead, defeating death, and offers eternal life to those who reach out from the grave by faith and take it. We pray for those in our midst who have never trusted in Christ that today would be the day of salvation. And Father, for the rest of us, as we prepare to remember his sacrificial and atoning love, help us fully prepare, truly anticipate, and rightly worship you. We ask these things in the precious name of Jesus, your Son and our Savior, Lord, and coming King. Amen. Let's eat and drink together. Thank you so much for joining us today. For more sermons and other resources, you can visit our website at witchbiblechapel.org. To listen to our weekly podcast, Word Processing, you can go to Spotify or Apple Podcasts or any other podcasting platform. Remember, you can always join us in person or on our live stream at 10.30 a.m. on Sundays. Thanks for watching.